Hey, what's up, y'all? This is KJ52, and welcome to the KJ52 Podcast, episode number nine, Collaborations, the album, Song by Song Breakdown, featuring Todd Collins. Uh, first of all, if you hadn't had a chance to check out the documentary about my life, it is going down on Kickstarter. You can just search Kickstarter and look for KJ52 Documentary. Uh, please donate if you can. It's uh, almost funded, and we'd love for you to be a part of all the great rewards that we're adding with that. Also, I'm including a very bonus exclusive song at the end of this podcast. It is the first ever demo of Dear Slim. <clears throat> I'm going to put a little snippet, but the only way to actually get this track, if you're interested, is to head over to patreon.com forward slash kj52 and become a patron. Uh, you get a ton of unreleased music, or if you ever want feedback on your songs, uh, I do that also. So, all that to be said, thank you guys for tuning in. This was such an in-depth podcast that I'm going to have to break it up into two parts. So this is part one. Uh, we talk about the background behind collaborations and everything that went into it. And we also uh, break down song by song. But again, there's so many songs on this album. Uh, we got up to Dear Slim and I felt it was easier to just kind of break this up into two. I uh, hope you guys dig it. Uh, I thought it was really great what me and Todd go into. First of all, Todd Collins was the producer behind it. So... Anyway, love you guys. Thank you so much. God bless. One love. One God. Uh, what up, everybody? This is KJ52. Welcome to KJ52 Podcast. Uh, this is episode number nine, uh, a song-by-song breakdown of my album, Collaborations. Uh, there's a lot of people I could interview for this podcast, but I figured the best person to be uh, interviewed, or at least to get a song-by-song breakdown, would be the guy who was the producer behind the entire record. So, uh, welcome to the podcast, Mr. Todd Collins. Everybody give it up. Ah! Hey, woo, woo, I'll, I'll, hey. I'll insert, What's up? <laughs> I'll insert my fake Jamaican air horn right there. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Nice. <laughs> but anyway, um, I'll give, I want to, here's, here's something I'm really super interested in is giving my perspective on the record versus your perspective, especially on the songs, but also, you know, where things were at because, um, you know, this record was for me. I I, I call it my mama said knock you out record. Mm-hmm. You know, cause <laughs> yes. For those that don't know, LL Cool J. You know, he had a record called Mama Said Knock You Out, and previously he had kind of gotten beat up, beat down, kind of written off, told it was over. And uh, he, the story goes, he went to his grandma's house and she said, "Just go knock him out." So he named the record yep. Mama Said Knock You Out, and so. Uh, for those that don't know the backstory on collaborations, um, this was my first record after being dropped uh, about mm-hmm. two years prior, and uh, I had kind of been written off by the industry as a as a broken experiment, for lack of a better term. Um, I had, uh, you know, a lot of money spent on the first record, but you know, it, it apparently, according to label politics, it wasn't enough made to justify a second record. So my first label I was with, Essential, um, who was owned by a parent company, dropped me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I tried going around, getting record deals at multiple other places. Nobody really wanted to touch me. Uh, I went to multiple label showcases. I had I, mean, I had a very concise plan of what I was going to do. And nobody would kind of bite, except for uh, a guy by the name of Brandon Ebel, who mm-hmm. at the time... Was, was the owner of Tooth & Nail Records, which was a rock label, um, but was trying to get into hip-hop through a sub-label he had called Uprock. And 
I guess best place to pick up the story is is you know you saw me get uh, get dropped by Essential, mm-hmm. and you were actually the one uh, that most people don't know is you actually paid for my studio time for me to get back into the studio and start recording new music. And I remember you mm-hmm. saying kind of really clearly to my to to me, to me at the time was like, look, if nobody will sign you, just know that I can I'll put your record out myself through Beatmart. Yeah. Yep. which was your label that you were getting off the ground at the time after leaving Goatee. Am I correct in everything? That, anything? Yes, that is absolutely correct. In um, 01, and if I remember correctly, collaborations ended up coming out in 02. 01, yeah. um, I ended up selling my portion of ownership in Goatee Records to EMI Music. Uh, at the time, they were buying a stake in Goatee, and I just felt like it was the right time for me to kind of get out, cash out, and um, become independent uh, from a standpoint right. of just producing rather than kind of wearing two hats where it's a label and producing. So I was just like, hey, if we can't, if we can't get something with some teeth from a label standpoint for you, then I was just going to basically base everything around you as one of our first artists, because we had not really set everything up artist, uh, artist wise, roster wise at the time. Yeah. And, um, you know, we were still, we were still laying the foundation, but I was just, I, I just believed enough in you and your, and your ministry and your artistry and all that stuff. I was like, daggone it. I'm going to make this happen. If it hair lips, the Pope, you know, You and your Plant City phrases. I, you know what? Exactly. Every time I think I've got your plants, hair lips. The... <laughs> <laughs> For those who don't know, uh, I grew up in Ybor City, Tampa. Todd grew up in Plant City, which is their claim to fame as they do the Strawberry Festival every year. So while correct. these towns are only 45 minutes apart, they're definitely... <laughs> <laughs> they're worlds apart. Slightly different. <laughs> they're worlds apart. Uh, but, uh, so yeah, a lot of, I always thought it was interesting was that, um, you know, we grew up so close to each other. Obviously we're, we didn't know yeah. each other cause we're about, I think seven years apart in age, but Correct. it's funny too. Cause back in the day when I started, there was a guy that we used to kind of minister to, or just, you know, have connection with that ran a, mm-hmm. a secular mainstream magazine that Todd went to school with. Yep. And I never forget, you know, back in the nineties, like, Oh, I know this guy, the, the Collins brothers. I went to school with them, and yep. they run this goatee records. And I'm like, wow, that's I never knew that. But anyway, I digress. Um, <laughs> in your, in your opinion, yes. In your opinion, wh- why do you think none of the labels would would uh, ultimately sign me? Because I mean, I I met with Sparrow, I met with Forefront, I met with Flickr, uh, pretty much every major Nashville label. They were all like interested, but none of them would make that jump. Why do you think? as a label guy, especially someone that was in Nashville, because I, I ended up signing with a label that was in Seattle, not Nashville. Yeah, I think, and I hope this is taken the right way, because this may sound a, somewhat a little bit negative, but I don't mean it to be. I think that yeah. a lot of labels, especially at that time, were kind of laying in the weeds and waiting to see what happens with new things. And yeah. it wasn't just necessarily with hip-hop it was with urban pop some of it was with gospel like progressive gospel um a lot of the labels didn't want to be the first one they wanted to see something happen first before they could make it work 
Now, at the time, in um, in 02, 01, 2000, 2001, 2002, um, DC Talk had really paved a solid way for other people and that did include some hip-hop stuff but it was very i looked at it as more progressive contemporary music in general if that makes any sense um which some of it included some hip-hop some of it included urban based music some of it include rock uh very hard some some hard rock that paved the way for some other hard rock bands you know that kind of thing uh, in the in the mainstream side of Christian music, but I, I think at the time it was just one of those situations where it was bad timing. I think that you came along at a time in the collaborations days, whenever you got right before you got dropped, uh, where it was just people were experimenting with new genres or labels were, yeah. but they were a little yeah. bit apprehensive and they wanted to see what would work and what wouldn't. You know, they didn't want to they didn't want to throw money at something and it flopped. Do you think that most of the labels were reactive as opposed to proactive? Absolutely. They would just, yeah. So they're not in the business of taking risks for the most part or doing things yes. for the sake of, you know, and, where and you know what? Is going. I, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And, and, and I think that not that we were such visionaries as far as me, Joey, and Toby at Goatee, but I think that was part of what made us do so well is two things number one we didn't really care we just wanted to make the music that we personally liked and number two we were dumb enough to try it you know we we were we were dumb enough to kind of throw some money at it to see if it worked and you know what that not only garnered some some momentum musically but it garnered a heck of a lot of fans it it pulled fans that were not normally Christian music fans at all and and they became loyalists and we just got lucky yeah. with that and i think that's that's what made us win because we just we just went for it because we didn't have any other yeah we didn't know any better you know yeah yeah i remember it was funny too cuz at that time i came up with a really very specific plan and a lot of it was you know based on how i saw john rubin winning and me you know whatever you want to call it, losing. Because mm-hmm. um, we both came out at the same time. We had the same booking agency, two different labels, but essentially the same producer. So I thought all things are basically equal. Why is he doing you know two to three times better than me? So not that I was trying to imitate his model as much, but I was like, what what is he doing that's connecting that what I'm doing is not? And I was mm-hmm. like, how can I like reinterpret that for myself so I remember this really specific conversation, and it's funny because I actually got some backlash about the collaborations record um, because they thought I was selling out on the collaborations record compared to Seventh Avenue, which began a pattern of every time I put out a new album, they were saying the previous album was better, and uh, mm-hmm. the next album was a sellout. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I do remember one specific thing was that people really took issue with my quote-unquote new image. Uh, that I had on the cover and on the back. Mm-hmm. And there was a certain, you know, people in the Christian hip-hop industry were like, you know, dude, you're trying to imitate Eminem, you're trying to look like him, you're trying to look too pretty, you look like Michael W. Smith. I mean, I, was, I got the litany mm-hmm. of all the the backlash. <laughs> and it really is funny, because it all goes down to a ground-zero conversation that you and I had at Jonathan's. And I don't know yep. if you remember this conversation, but do you remember what I said? 
I, I, I don't remember specifically what you said. I remember the conversation. And I remember you basically being extremely wide open to doing whatever it took to become successful. Right. Because, and, and I didn't, and here was the thing. There was a difference to me from a label and a production standpoint. There was a difference from me, to me from somebody sitting across from me and saying, I'll do whatever it takes to be successful just to become successful for money or whatever that means or, 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 or fame or popularity, whatever. But I didn't get that from you. I, I got the fact that I got from you, and this was what was, was attractive to me about your business model, so to speak, was the fact that you wanted to do whatever it took to get your message out and then everything else was kind of secondary. Yeah, you wanted to provide for your family, and this was before your, your kids and blah, blah, blah. But you, you really wanted to make this your profession, and you really had a platform, and you really wanted something to say. Because I was, if you remember correctly, I came and met you in Ybor City, and I went to an outside show where there was probably, right. what, 50 people there, and, and I right. saw you in action, not just performing, but I saw you actually take action and, and minister to some of those kids, and that's what struck me. And so from that yeah. point forward, I was like, this guy's for real, and, and if he's telling me he'll do whatever it takes, I'm going to tell him from an executive perspective and from a label perspective and what we look for on the other side of the fence to say, okay, this is what's going to work for the sales force. This is what works whenever yeah. we go to sales conference, and this is what speaks to them. And I'm going to tell you kind of the unspoken, show you where the bodies are buried kind of secrets. And so you just yeah. – and I don't specifically remember what was said. You probably remember that better, but I just remember the overall – the overall uh, um, What's the what's the word I'm looking for? It, it was just the overall vibe of the conversation yeah. that you were like, "Hey, tell me what to do. Point me in the direction, and I'll take it and I'll run with it." Type of mentality. And I was yeah. like, I, I respected that. I was like, okay, cool. Let's see if this. Let's 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 do this. You know. <clears throat> yeah. Well, I had a I had a really clear idea of what I was going to do musically, mm -hmm. but. I was a little stuck on the image side in that aspect because I felt like there was something that was not connecting. And mm -hmm. for me, image was about being hip hop. You know what I'm saying? Like I derived a lot of my identity and my branding and my imagery from hip hop. And the thing that was kind of slapping me in the face is that people were saying from a industry side, they were saying you're too, I hate to say the word, but they were like, you're too legitimate. You know, mm -hmm. they were like, yeah, you're too you're too legitimate to the to the culture and we can't mm -hmm. sell that and we can't brand that and we can't do the look of that and this is something that was really hard for me to let go because yeah. it's one thing to switch up the music a little bit it's another thing to change your whole image and your branding because for me that was like my camouflage as a white guy to mm -hmm. try and you know to I had worked so hard to be accepted so yeah. this is just such a funny, dumb thing to hold on to. But, um, you know, in the circles that I ran, for me to have what was called a fade haircut, which is like really short in the back and it fades to the top, and mm -hmm. to have a goatee and to get a tan, like I looked very Hispanic. Mm -hmm. And that sounds 
foul that I had to like pass myself off as another ethnicity, but it helped me blend in if people mistook me for Hispanic. Hold on one second. Okay, that's fine. Um, um, you know what I'm saying? So like, yeah. Oh yeah. You, yeah, this you, conversation went like this. You, you, I said, Hey Todd, what do I got to do? I don't know if I said, what do I got to do to win or, or to like be accepted or, or to survive or whatever. And you said to me the thing that I never expect anybody to say, you said, and it's such a dumb, simple thing to say, to, to, to ask of, but man, you might as well have asked me to like give up two of my kidneys and my like mm-hmm. back molars. Like you said, you got to grow. You said, you go, you got to grow your hair out. Yeah. And I thought, what? You're like, yeah, you have to grow your hair out because at the time, again, I had a goatee and mm-hmm. and a fade. You're like, you have to look appealing to mainstream America yep. because your look right now is too hip hop or too legitimate. I mean, you didn't say in that many words, but basically yeah. what you did say was you have to make that change. If you don't make that change, you're going to run into the same problems. And you didn't, again, you didn't spell all that out, but you just said it mm-hmm. in such a simple thing was like, either grow your hair out or you're going to go into the same problems again. And that was true. And, and, and that, that's, that, that basically uh, spawned from us doing countless sales conferences to our sales force at EMI, to hundreds of people across the country, and getting feedback from certain things from our artists at Goatee, and basically them saying, hey, look, I understand why these are the way they are, but I can't sell them to the youth pastors and the music pastors at these churches for them to buy in. So we were like, look, in order for everybody to buy in, we've got to sell the sales force, and the sales force goes to bat for us. That was, and that yeah. was me telling you, hey, listen, we've got to appeal to these sales guys because these sales guys, once they buy into what you're doing, they're going to be our best salesmen, you know? And, right. that, was, and that was appealing to middle America. That literally is all right. I was doing. And so, like, that to me was, like, my final hurdle that I had to go. One thing I thought this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. I mean, you mean mm-hmm. to tell me that a couple inches of hair on my head is preventing me from like the difference between 20,000 records sold and 100,000 records sold. And obviously mm-hmm. it's not that simple, but I was like, huh. So I now incorporated that into, it was a total push now. I was like, I had mm-hmm. the idea of what I was going to do musically. Um, and I was like, okay, from an imaging standpoint. But this was also my also way of going, you know what? I I understand by making these moves, I'm also going to deal with probably infinite more backlash. But I had made up my mind to go, I'm no longer trying to earn the respect as an MC. My goal now is to just make music that appeals to regular people. Yeah. And that's kind of where we went into the record with that mentality. At least for me, I and, know uh, I did. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It, two things for me. My mentality was, yes, you're going to get some backlash, but that's going to be a fraction. The backlash that you get is going to be a fraction compared to the, the stuff that you never hear on the acceptance side because they just buy your records, love your records, and are now loyal fans. You never usually hear from those. You always hear from the squeaky wheel. That was one thing. And number yeah. two, I remember Kristen, do you want to let Jacob record, stay? If you want to stay, you can stay. It's up to you. We'll just be able to fit more stuff in the car. We can take one car now. Yeah. Sorry. 
No, that's all right. I thought you were talking sorry, to me at first. I was like, dang. Um, the, no, I was going to say the other thing was that was the, that was the first thing. The other thing was was I remember on this particular record after your first record um, after the Seventh Avenue record, I remember you coming with like you said a very distinct vision, and a lot of the songs were already basically done. We just had to map them out yeah. and. And what I would consider basically be kind of the executive producer kind of oversee it coming into a a formulated um, and a kind of a concise uh, what's the word I'm looking for almost uh, um, not not a pop not not a pop uh, perspective but uh, um, a mainstream perspective you know not we didn't yeah. I didn't I, I didn't think it should be a, a real underground type thing even though there's some underground right. elements to it you know I was just my whole vision was to make sure that it, we we kind of put a bow on the mainstream aspect of that record and I thought it, I thought we did a good job there's a, there's some really good songs on there especially the fact that you brought a lot of that stuff to me already done or at least halfway done you know Right. Well, what what happened too for those that might be tuning in? So, like, just so you understand, is I demoed. I I want to say like almost twenty songs before mm-hmm. I even got my re- my second record deal, and you actually paid for the studio time. I don't know if you remember this, but one summer we were, you know, yep. coming through Nashville, and I stayed at somebody's place or something like that. And I remember being with my wife and my hype man, and you said, "Well, go ahead and go over to Steve Lotz's spot and demo all these songs, and I'll pay for the studio time." Because I, I certainly was, you know, struggling. I mean, that was probably the summer where, you know, I got evicted. I lost my car almost. I mean, I was, you know, in some dire straits financially. And yeah. um, But with those demoing of those 20 songs, you know, I was able to pull the ones that I felt were, like, the strongest. Or at least to go, hey, Todd, here's 20 demos. Tell me what you think. And one of those demos was Dear Slim. Yep. And um, I had written Dear Slim, and I had written, you know, just multiple ideas and and the funny thing was without having a label breathing down my neck it was so much easier for me to make you know art and just be creative and I think sometimes like commerce really gets in the way of creativity and you know do you remember in that one initial 20 song session when when Deer Slim was in there like do you remember that hearing that demo or was that like I absolutely out to your oh yeah okay yeah that one that one to me stuck out like a sore thumb <clears throat> that one to me I didn't know that pardon, pardon my euphemism that one to me stuck out like a turd ball in a bowl of milk I was like okay that one is <laughs> that one's the one that we need to, to focus on that one needs to be one that if there is a Christian single release that's the one in other words and in hip hop music especially Christian hip hop music there, there were never really singles but that's how I looked yeah. at that song. I was like, okay, if we single the song and, you know, some some progressive radio station across the country picks it up, this is the one that it needs to be, at least to kick yeah. off the record, you know, because it was yeah. musical, it had a melody, it was extremely catchy, and there was a, there was a message yeah. behind it that people could kind of latch onto and take hold of, you know? And I thought yeah. that all of those elements all worked together really nicely. You know, <clears throat> well, the funny thing about Dear Slim is when I wrote it, I had actually written a first version and I scrapped it because it just wasn't saying what I wanted to say. And I, I found this Roots instrumental that 
that had this sort of melancholy vibe to it. And I ended up writing all the verses to it, but I didn't have any chorus for it because I'm like, what am I going to talk about on a chorus like mm-hmm. for this song? And um, then I ended up kind of re rewriting it, not necessarily rewriting, but re kind of redoing it over a track, which really was just a sample that uh, my man Billy Puddles had done, but there's yep, no way I, I knew that. I could use that beat because a lot of my my idea for that for the album was I'll get I'll just get beats from producers that I like, and Todd can beef them up, and then if there's any yep. missing tracks, you know you could create them from scratch. I wasn't really going I need Todd to make all 17 tracks. I was like going I need him to make the tracks that we don't get, and I need him to beef up the tracks that you yep. know that need that and 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 the third basically year, so. executive produce. Right. But see, for hip hop guys, you know, a lot of us didn't think that way. There was no concept. Yeah. Like to us, the guy who made the beat is the producer. Yep. You know what I mean? And yep. I think that's one of the first times where I went into a record and I thought, okay, there's got to be more than the typical way I'd always been doing it. So probably a good thing to do is why don't we like go track for track? And mm-hmm. I know you got the album queued up and we can uh, maybe just, you know, just play a couple seconds of it. And then I'll tell you what I remember about it. And you tell me what you remember about it. So, all right, let me, uh, uh let me turn this up here. Let me turn, turn this up here in my, uh, illustrious technologically advanced studio here. Uh, all right. <laughs> By that, you mean you're going to hold the phone to the speaker? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right. I'm going to, do you want me to just start it with do that? Or do you want me to do the leave a message thing? You want me to start with the intro? Well, yeah. So let's. We don't have to go through all the interludes, but I'll just talk about the leave the message idea. So that was, for me, that was like I wanted to have a running theme that yeah. ran through the album. I loved like thematic albums, and so I grew up, you know, listening to guys like De La Soul, and you know, they mm-hmm. created thematic production. So the idea of the leave a message skit was just like, if you press this track, it's like you're you're checking a phone tree to go to a different song. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yep. And you actually called Movie Phone, didn't you, for, to get those samples? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You yeah, remember doing do. that? That's all yeah, from I do. Movie Phone. I, yeah, I do I find remember that, that hilarious. So we can and skip we that definitely stuff, were that, on the that same, was the concept. Well, we were definitely on the same page with all that stuff because I was one of those guys back whenever Tower was selling things like Three Feet High and Rising and Stakes is High and – um, all that kind of uh, ring, 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 all that kind of stuff with De La Soul, which I loved, and I loved the thematic stuff. I was the one that was standing in line at 1201 to buy the, the very first copy. So I was right there with you. I was like, if there's some way that we can make songs and they all connect and people kind of connect with that, then that was the, that was the way to go. So I was all about that, those little interludes and that And plus they're just ear candy. They're interesting. You know, that's why we did those talk records anyway. So I'll, I'll play a little bit of the intro and then go into, uh, do that. How's that? Go for it. KJ52 presents collaborations. I'm not available to take your rhyme right now, but if you pay close attention to the next 74 minutes of music, we're going to take you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so we it just feel so weird to like call, even to phone call anything and to have a phone tree to yeah. get through. Yeah, and and we literally sampled each number. I remember doing that. That was that was actually kind of fun. So, um anyway, all right, here's do that, which which by the way, I remember this song. This is one of the one of the few songs that 
I did with you from start to finish. And I remember right. I remember this song particularly because we had a lot of other songs and song ideas. And I remember us talking about, hey, listen, we need something that's upbeat, that's kind of um, not pop, but accessible to kind of kick the record off that's kind of upbeat and, and happy, you know, that kind of stuff. And as I remember it, this is kind of what came out, you know, right? It, it, am, am, yeah. am I on the right track? Yep. If you here to get live, go ahead and do that. Then if you here to just vibe, go ahead and do that. But if you here to just vibe, go ahead and do that. Then get your hands up high, go ahead and do that. Well, if you here to get live, go ahead and do that. If you here to just vibe, go ahead and do that. But if you here to just vibe, go ahead and do that. Then get your hands up high. You know what? Hey, yo, I came in. You're not. You're not gonna say this, but I'll say it. I. Todd told me later, or why you were making the song. Because I was like, well, I need I need tracks that are like, you know, what Neptunes and, and Chad yep. and Terrell are doing. And yep. you said, well, look at that real quick. And you showed me the samples, and it all had Neptunes on it. I was like, wait a minute, what are you talking about? You go, these are actual sounds Chad gave me. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, I, I like became, my jaw I, hit the floor. Mm-hmm. Because at the time, wasn't how what was your connection to the Neptunes or Chad Hugo? It was through Kenna, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. What what happened was I did a song who who is still an artist today to this day, but we originally at Goatee were developing this guy named Kenna. His last name is Zemedkin. He'd probably be mad at me if I said this over the over a a, a, a bigger medium. But um, he goes by the name of Kenna K E N N A, and he is um, still an artist. But we were developing him as a regular artist on goatee. Well, it never, it never came to fruition. I think he ended up being a lot bigger than what we could have done in a Christian mark. He's not a Christian artist anymore. He's just a pop artist. Anyway, I was working on his record with him. It was me, Chad Hugo of the Neptunes and Otto Price. We were all working on that record out at the castle where we did part of your record. And, um, I was helping coordinate some stuff. I was arranging some strings for that record. I did some drum programming. I did a bunch of stuff. And, um, and I just became good friends with Chad and Chad basically gave me his Neptunes library. And that's what we used for that song. Because I just remember hearing that stuff and going, man, this stuff is so thick, but it's so tight and it's perfect for that kind of almost dancey, uh, happy grooving type stuff. And I was just, I was just taken by it. And he was like, one day he was like, Hey TC, man, do you, do you want the drum sounds? I was like, you would give them to me. He goes, Hey, and this was, this was the mentality I ended up taking. He's like, listen, anybody can have my drum sounds. It doesn't matter. It's how you use them. He said, you're going to use right. these things. If you have them different than I will. And vice versa. And so I've always been of the same mentality. If somebody asked me for my drum sounds, which I have thousands of now, I'm like, shoot, you can have every one of them. You're going to use them completely different than I do. So I was impressed with that. And then that's how that came about, that that whole song, yeah. which I thought was kind of cool. So in a roundabout way, I can say the Neptunes produced that track. All right, moving on. Next exactly. Song. All right, here we go. <laughs> the Choice is Yours with John Rubin. Here we go. This or that. This or that. This or that. Uh, this or that. Uh, hello, how you doing? Can we keep along with the John Rubin, and we steady cooling, Mike checking one, two, 
tell me where the party's right, at. Alright, thanks my friend right. from the sun to this. Right. We move to the rhythm without wondering. Yahweh comes uh -huh. first, all is under him. Take a dope MC and then double him. You got two. Okay, that to me is a classic song and. I remember that. So, of course, uh, obviously, Black Sheep did that one. And, and whenever you yeah. brought me that idea, I was like, I love the idea. I just hope we don't get put in jail for doing it because we didn't have the, <laughs> the money to clear the samples and stuff, which we still haven't been put in jail. So that's a good thing. But the, the thing that I remember and liked the most about that song is how you and John worked together on that song and how you sound together on that song. It's almost like you yeah. guys were in a band in the past and knew each other that well because you have very distinctively yeah. different voices, but they work so well together. I remember thinking on that song, I was like, dude, this song is hot. I, I love this song. It's dope. And I liked the way we flipped the, um, the hook. You know, you could, get with, you could get with this or you could get with that was the original. Well, we did yeah. it backwards, I think. You could get with that or you could get with this or something like that. Right. And um, I just right. thought it was clever. It was cool because I love that kind of stuff. I grew up on that kind of stuff. And it was, to me, it was like shoot, shooting fish in a barrel, man. I was, I was loving that. Right. Well, two things about that song that are really funny. One, uh, originally, I think I, I talked to Blake Knight, who did the original. I feel like he had different drums on it. But yes. what he did was, I think I remember he went and found the original sample that Black Sheep used and resampled it. That's so why I forgot about that. Yep. No real, there, there's no real indistinguishable difference between mine and Black Sheep outside of the fact, I think I remember you going in and changing the drums out and yep. obviously arranging it and some things like that. But the funny thing was, it's how much we just threw caution to the wind, like basically going, well, yeah, this seems like a good way to put a song out. I mean, there's no sample clearance. There was no particular, like... But then again, it's like you're not sampling the the re, you're not sampling the song. We sampled the original, which yeah, I'm sure yeah. they didn't clear either. I no. mean, everything about this is a terrible idea, and yet we never got caught. <laughs> I find the funniest that that's funny to me. Also, the fact that John never knew Black Sheep, which I was mind blown. People I, I like, know, me too. John's like, I don't really know that song. I'm like, what? That's like such a classic, dude. You know, like, how do you not know this song? And he was like, uh, I don't know. And then yeah, that's uh, that song. And and two, that was like, um, that was one of those songs that we could have never ever done if you had been on a label. I mean, we wouldn't have even we wouldn't have even been able to think about doing that song if you'd have been on a label. That was one of those songs where because we were independent at the time, where you're concerned. We could just do anything creative. And my mentality was, hey, let's do everything that we can. In other words, you came with 20, 25 songs. Let's narrow it down to 15, 16, 17. And then from there, let's do all of those. And if they don't work, then we can, then we can kind of cherry pick from there. It just so happened that we ended up having 17 really strong ideas. Um, but that song would have never happened if you'd have been on a label, including Goatee. We'd have been like, oh, there's no way we can do that. There's, it's going to be too expensive. Hey, for those that might, this might sound disjointed right now, but we're jumping back in. Uh, I was driving while I was recording Todd the first time around, so we're just going to pick up right where we left off. Uh, I know we had talked about the Choice is Yours second track on that album. So let's go ahead and uh, move on to the next, if that's cool with you. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Right. Uh, I got the, I got right, the album. So next. 
Oh, you you want to play it or you want me to play it? You can do it if you want. No, go ahead. I'm going to pull it up too, though. Okay. Okay. Uh, next up was uh, Rise Up. I'm going to have to defer to you on this one, KJ, to be honest yeah. with you. I, there's not a ton that I remember about this one. I want to say, put it this way. I remember loving this because I like the feel and I like the old, um, the old sample that we used, which was the Beastie Boys, which yeah. originally was from an old uh, Parliament song. So, I mean... I'm, I'm in 100% from, from Jump Street where that's concerned. But I don't remember, did I have anything to do with that song or did you bring that song? I don't remember a lot about that. I just remember I like the hook and I like the track. Yeah, um, so this was, you weren't here for the other podcast I did where I talked about peace of mind and just the whole rap rock genre and correct, yeah, all that stuff. So this was, I talked about how I realized that my fan base was limited if I just stuck to the Christian hip hop idea, you know what I mean? Because mm -hmm. Christian hip hop as a fan base was small. So I thought if I can find a way to pull in people that are into rock, I'm going to increase the pool, so to speak. And so at that time yep. I had gotten to be friends with Trevor from TFK, thousand for crutch and Rob from pillar. And a lot of that was just me going, you know what? There seems to be an overlap here. Rap rock obviously was huge in the early 2000s. Um, mm -hmm. And those guys, I noticed a lot of the rock guys were just really friendly to me. So actually probably a lot of times more easier to deal with than the rap guys. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so that's all that. That was my, this song was just my attempt at somehow sort of fusing those worlds together. Did I feel like I exactly accomplished it? Probably not. You know what I mean? But... Um, I love that drum loop sure from close. Beastie Boys, Paul's Boutique. Yeah, it's yeah, Paul's Boutique is what I loved. And so I thought, there's got to mm -hmm. be some world that's like Beastie Boys that sort of fuses the rock and the rap world together. And, and I just, to be honest with you, because the record was called Collaborations, I was like, why not try to do something for mm -hmm. that world and not just stick to collaborating with, with hip-hop artists? And so that was kind of where that came from. So, I mean, I don't think it was I like think the, the reason why on the record. Well, I think the reason why I don't remember a ton about it is because the only thing that you and I recorded literally were your were just your leads. Because I think, didn't you already right. have Rob and Trevor's vocals and everything, and all we had to do was plug them in and that kind of stuff? Because they, they recorded yeah. remotely, correct? <clears throat> exactly. Yeah. And I think I even said to you, like, yo, this is the drum beat I want to use. So I was very yeah. specific about that. And then I think you just got Rapole to play a, like a, a little guitar riff over it. And that was like pretty much it. 
That's right. That's right. So. Yeah. I, I, I love that song and I love how it feels. I just didn't, for some reason, yeah. I don't know if this is my age or whatever. I just didn't remember a lot about it. If, if that makes sense. So, yeah. Well, I remember when I turned it in, my A&R was like, you just going to jack the loop from Beastie Boys? And I'm like, yep. <laughs> yep. Thank you for noticing. He's like, all right, I hope we don't get, he's like, I hope we don't get in trouble. I'm like, there's plenty of things that I hope we don't get in trouble with on this record, but Anyway, next, we'll yeah. next track. <laughs> All right, Dear Sam, la, 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 la. All right, here we go. There we go. La, 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 la. Yes, la, 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 Yes, Slim, I never wrote you or been calling. My name ain't Stan, son, now nah, we never met him. My name's KJ, let me begin by introducing now myself to you and these very reasons I'll be writing. Why well, I took the time in the who and where and why and the purpose of my verse and the reasons I'm reciting. What I hope you're learning from the truth, I pray you'll find it. And every word I'm writing down upon the dotted lines. It. See, I heard your first album's called Infinite. I, heard it. I shook my head because nowadays you sounded different. What drove you take your whole persona and... So there's a lot about that song I remember. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I guess uh, I don't even know where to start, but obviously this is like the track that, the song that uh, turned the corner for me. The completely uh, total, total non total accidental hit. I, <laughs> I do remember <laughs> having this song in my back pocket, and when I went to those labels saying, "Guys, I had this song called Dear Slim." That's you know I've had people just clamoring for me to put it out. I wasn't going to put it out. That's the funny thing. Cause a lot of people were like, "Oh, you did it as a as a uh, you know you did it as a marketing tool and all this stuff." And I actually was never going to put that song out. It wasn't until I did mm -hmm. it live one time, and so many people were going, "Yo, man, I heard about that song." So it kind of forced my hand to put it out. Mm -hmm. But when I originally recorded it to that sample again, here we are back to the samples again that Billy Puddles did. I knew that I couldn't leave the song like that, you know? Yeah. So yeah. that sample's still in there. I, <laughs> I mm -hmm. noticed it's still mm -hmm. actually in there. Um, yeah. But you replayed over top of it and added new drums and kind of fleshed it out from a song perspective. And the whole, I always laugh at people like, they're like that la 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 chorus, man, that's so catchy. And I, I have to laugh because I have to be like, yeah, I wish I was that intelligent. I just could never come up with a chorus. Yeah. That was just literally me just m mimicking the melody. <laughs> and then I don't know whether you said like, yo, just keep that as the chorus. Yeah. But you I remember distinctly resang re it for me. So, yeah, well, I, I distinctly remember this. I don't even know if you remember this, but whenever we first started with this song, I don't know what it was. I heard it. Maybe it was, I heard it in my head for what it could be, not what it was. And I really liked the, yeah. I, I liked the, the concept of it. You know what I'm saying? But I remember once we had it and we started recording it, you wanted to kind of jump in, jump straight into the, to the verse. And I was like, wait a second. If you, I don't know if you remember this, but I was like, I was really adamant about putting the hook at the front of the song to establish the, the catchiness of the song, because I knew if there was any type yeah. of a chance of us having a single and somebody playing it on the radio, that that would help it. You know what I mean? So yeah. um, I think it's only a half hook at the front. I don't even remember. But I, I remember I, remember I right. wanted 
specifically to put the hook at the front because it was catchy and it was stuff that people would walk away from singing. And to this day, and because it's live and because of the, because of the melody, I can still, without even thinking about it, if you said, hey, sing me Dear Slim, I could immediately go, la, 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 la. It's just, it's one of those things that just literally is embedded in your brain once you hear it. So that was what, that was what I loved about the song. And, you know, it was one of those things where it's got some depth to the song, but at the same time, it's got something that people can walk away with too, you know? So, well, you know, it's funny too, Todd, is, um, you know, people go, oh, you were trying to, you were trying to make a hit and da da da. And I'm like, do you realize how long these verses are? Like, it's a 16 yeah. bar first verse, 24 bar third, second, and you know, 24 bar, I think, third one. It's not in mm-hmm. radio format from a verse standpoint. And one thing you and I used to fight over all the time was you trying to chop up my verses. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know what I mean? Because you would be like, ah, that verse is too long. You got to cut it in half. And I'd be like, no. <laughs> I would get so mad. But this is one of the yeah. songs you never made me do that to. And was yeah, it, I mean, was true. that just because you felt like it lived, it lived by itself? Uh, yeah, I, I think that I, I think that the content of it, you know, both both the depth of what it was saying and the actual concept of the song, I think, kind of lent itself to being a little bit more uh, boundaryless, if that's even a word. You know what I'm saying? Uh, my my whole thought yeah. process, and still to this day, after listening it to it, is yes, those verses are long, but you know what? They're they're saying something that's integral to the story and to the song, but it also has a hook at the front that establishes the the commercialism to it, if that makes any sense. So, yeah. I, totally. I think to me, I think it, it was a win-win. It was a win for me because, okay, it was commercial, commercially viable, and it was a win for you that I didn't necessarily have to draw a line in the sand in to where you could say what you needed to say and say it in those 24 bars rather than 12 or 16 that I always used to harp on. And, um, and we, both got a, you know, we both got what we wanted, and it was a good song. I mean, to me, it's still this is the, this is the flagship song for you, number one. And number two, this is, this is the – in my opinion, musically and arrangement-wise, the best song on the record. It may not be my yeah. favorite song, well, you know, but it's the best song. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree. Because people go, what's your favorite song? And I don't know if I necessarily ever have a favorite song, but I can always go, what's the song that, like, turned the corner for you? And I have to always go back to Dear Slim. Yeah. Which, you know, obviously this song took it to VH1. It took it to Eminem himself. It took it to, you know... MTV's TRL, you know, obviously here I am darn near 20 years later still talking about it. So, you know, people go, how do you write a hit? I was like, I don't know, because everything, anything that's ever popped off for me, I never sat down and said, this is going to be the thing. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? But I think you can always, the best thing you can do is always just come from your heart. And now granted, I will have to say that the way, the things that I was saying on Dear Slim, I don't think I thought through as much as I did on part two. And that was what caused me to do a part two because I felt like, dang, I'm getting so misinterpreted on mm-hmm. the initial version. I got to follow it up. But yeah, yeah, I mean, no, no question. This is the song that like was probably the best and worst idea I ever had. You know what I'm saying? So 
Um, <laughs> well, you but know that's what a whole the, other the thing is? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And 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 I'll just wrap it up by saying I agree with what you just said, and and I remember thinking that, but I also remember thinking, you know what? If this kind of stirs the pot a little bit, that's not a bad thing, you know, which it did to a degree. Yeah. And and from my perspective, right. there's, I mean, obviously it's it's this is debatable, but there's no such thing as bad publicity. And you know what? This this was one of the things that kind of even some of the bad publicity helped pay off for you, I think, in a good way. See, the, I, w- I don't think I I don't think I was emotionally ready for that, to be honest with you. Um, this was a this was a big source of backlash for me that I took very mm-hmm. personal and had to really work through in a lot of ways. Um, I think I was a better person for it. But again, that's a whole nother podcast. So I probably just do a, a yeah. Dear Slim trilogy podcast, maybe yeah. <laughs> at a different point. <laughs> But yeah, uh, you're gonna have to but yeah, let's go ahead call and me up for that one. Uh, I got, some, I got some other stuff for that. <laughs> All right, I'm, I'm so yeah, uh, it. it'll be like yes, Slim. My name for old you all been calling. My name ain't Stan, son. No, we never met him. My name's KJ, let me begin by introducing now Myself to you and these very reasons I'll be writing Why I took the time and the who, what, where and why and This purpose of my verse and these reasons I'm reciting What I hope you learn it from the truth, I pray you find it And every word I'm writing down upon the dotted lines in. See, I heard your first album was called Infinite I shook my head cause nowadays you sounded different What drove you take your whole persona and be flipping it now What makes a man totally change, see I ain't getting it Now was you sick of getting booed when you was ripping it and sick and never happened though and wanted to put an end to it what good's all kinds of dough and plus all kinds of flow to gain a world of fans and suffer the loss of soul my second letter cuz son i got some real problems it's now that you